Our text tonight is found in Matthew chapter 10, verse 29 through 31. <clears throat> Jesus speaking here. And if you've got a red letter edition in your Bible, it's probably in red. But let me remind you that it's all the Word of God. Whether it's in red or black ink, it doesn't matter. But Jesus, speaking to the disciples, tell them, or ask them, Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, ye are more valuable, of more value than many sparrows. If you listen to the news at any given time, any given day, I don't need to tell you that we are living in dangerous times. And if we find ourselves at times feeling insecure, it's because we are insecure. And the truth of the matter is, our world has never been as safe as we thought it was. Ever. And no wonder the days we live in tends to bring more anxiety in our lives. Those who research things like this tell us that there are five primary marks of insecurity. Number one, is helplessness. How many have been there before? When we feel helpless. Number two is isolation. Being by ourselves. The third area of marks of insecurity is vulnerability. Number four is being afraid of the future. Number five, the extreme pessimism. I'm not sure they were given any specific order, but just five things that primarily are indicators of insecurity. Insecurity is what causes us, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> to say things like, Something bad is going to happen, and there's nothing I can do about it. And no one can help me. And the interesting thing, and not in every case, but most of the time, it's not the big picture that troubles us as much as it is the problems of daily life. <clears throat> I know Paul admonishes us to be anxious for nothing, not to worry over anything, but what do we do? We worry. We worry about our finances. 
We worry about job security. Is there any such thing anymore? I remember when I first began at General Motors, and Paul, I know you worked at Ford for a lot of years. They told me when I hired in, if you can get five years in, you're set for life. They lied to me. We worry about job security. Those who are newly married, they they wonder whether or not their marriage will make it. We worry about our health. We worry about what's going to happen in our old age, if I ever get there. Wow. We worry about our investments. And the list goes on. And it steals from our courage. Sometimes it causes us to lay awake at night. Worrying about tomorrow. Worrying about the day after tomorrow. Worrying about next week. Next month. Or next year. Over the past few weeks in this series and having victory over certain things in our life, we have referred a lot to the providence of God. And so I am convinced that the biblical answer to insecurity, without a doubt, is found in the providence of God. And I want to say tonight, and Brother Paul Snodgrass, thank you for this thought. I know you didn't realize you were giving me a thought when you told me this. Until we come to the place in our life where we can say it's in God's hands, we will have insecurity in our lives. So I think the biblical answer to insecurity without a doubt, is in the doctrine of God's providence. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got you and me in his hands. The English word for providence, made up of two parts, pro and video put together. And that literally means, the English word means to see before. To see before. Now the only time the word providence itself is found in the Bible, Paul the Apostle is under arrest. The Sanhedrin Council has hired a orator to be their lawyer. To speak against the Apostle Paul. And as this orator is standing there, his name is Tertullius, before Felix the governor, he begins to butter that governor up. And he says to him, it's by your providence we enjoy the blessing we do as Jews. He was lying through his teeth. That's the only time you see the word providence. In the word of God. 
But even though we don't see the word providence directly applied to God, the concept of God's providence is biblical. You cannot study the word of God and not see the hand of God. You cannot study God's word and not see his providence. So when theologians speak about the providence of God, they're talking about God's gracious oversight of the universe. God's gracious oversight of the universe. I decided to to look it up, to Google it, and uh, I looked at two different dictionaries. And even though providence is used in a lot of ways in our culture, it is basically used in capital letters, and, and, the, and both dictionaries said this, to refer to God's control over everything in the world, in the universe. That is providence. So when I think about God's gracious oversight of the universe, i, I got to tell you, folks, every one of those words are vitally important. How many know it's a horrible thing to fall into the hands of an angry God? And yet, understand this. God's providence is simply one aspect of His grace. Yes, we are in His hands, and guess what He wants for us? The best He has to offer. His gracious oversight of the universe. And so thank God that this is part of one aspect of his grace. But also, the definition is a gracious oversight. And the word oversight tells us that he directs the course of affairs. Nothing happens by accident. God is in control. So we have his gracious oversight, and it's over the universe. And here's what's interesting. That reminds me that not only does God know the big picture, God is concerned about the the minutest uh, events of life. Doesn't matter how big it is or how small, God cares about it. We read a moment ago, He even counts the number of hairs on your head. We'll deal that to next week, okay? So make sure you bring your hair with you. And tonight I want to begin, and I, I, I guess I'll be like uh, the one brother who are the twins, um, the Worthington twins. He was here one time years ago and doing a revival, and he said a lot of preachers read their text and depart from it. Well, I guess I'll depart from it for just a little while tonight, but there's some groundwork I want to lay, and we will come back uh, to our text. But I want to share five statements that give us a picture of the meaning of God's providence in quite a bit of detail. First of all, When we speak about the problems of God, it means he upholds all things. 
Hebrews 1 verse 3. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of majesty on high. So what do we know about this God? This God who upholds all things. He not only created the universe, he sustains it. He keeps it in motion. motion. He keeps it in the right order. And he does this by preserving and delivering the universe until one day Christ is going to inherit it. Now think about that. The Bible says that Jesus is now the one through whom God speaks through. As in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2. But the Bible also says that God appointed Christ the heir of all things. And he also made the worlds by Christ. So according to what the scriptures say in the New Testament... It was Jesus who spoke the world into existence back in Genesis 1 and 2. And he also supports the world with his omnipotent word. Now, Christ doesn't physically hold with the world like they said about the mythical atlas. But understand, God is guiding the world toward an appointed future. The time when Christ will receive it as his inheritance. And because he sustains everything, nothing in creation is independent from him. How many know without God we can never exist? We wouldn't exist. And he holds all things together in a coherent, logical way. They are sustained and upheld. He prevents them from dissolving into chaos. In him alone and by his word, we find a unifying principle of all life. And he is transcendent over all other powers. And I couldn't help but think, just a moment ago, when scientists wonder why this works like it does, there's only one answer. That's God. He upholds all things. The second thing in his providence, he governs all events. Proverbs 21.1 The king's heart is in his hand, is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it with us wherever he will.
It's interesting to me. The heart of the king is in God's hands. But also, all the plans people have are in the hands of God. He governs over all events. A farmer sometimes will direct water by digging canals. Sometimes they dig small ditches through their fields that are so flat they get rid of water. Sometimes they bring it in when it's too dry. And the Bible says, in the same way the Lord directs the heart of kings. We saw that in the day of Moses when God held the heart of Pharaoh. We saw it in Isaiah chapter 10 when the Assyrian king and God said, the rod of my wrath is in your hand. In Isaiah 45, God prophesied that he would raise up a king named Cyrus to command his people to go back home. Ezra and Nehemiah, when they went to Artaxerxes for a provision, for permission to go back, do you know why he, he granted that? Because God directs the heart of kings. God is sovereign. So he upholds all things. He governs all things. And he directs everything to an appointed end. Proverbs 16.9 A man's heart devises his way, but the Lord directs his steps. I don't know a lot about Napoleon's faith in God or not. But before he went into the battle at Waterloo, he was asked the question, who will win the battle? And he said, he said, decide with the biggest artillery. And he had all that. But you know that Napoleon was soundly defeated. I'm not sure it was the same interview or not, but if he interviewed again, it may have been the same one. And the question was, what do you have to say now? And Napoleon said, man proposes, but God disposes. Good words. A man makes plans for his actions, but it's God who establishes them. His heart may devise a way, but the Lord directs his steps. So he upholds all things. He governs all events. He directs everything to a point in. And what amazes me, he does this all the time. And in every circumstance. Daniel chapter 2 verse 21. 
He changes the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. Do we realize tonight that the God of wisdom, he knows the beginning from the end. And a God of power does whatever he determines he can do. And without a doubt, he does it all the time and in every circumstance. We see his power on display in control of events. And Daniel says he changes the times and the seasons. But we see it in the control of the destiny of nations. He sets up kings and he deposes them. In Daniel's day, in the early part of his life, In Egypt, Nebuchadnezzar was on the throne. But do you know why he was there? He was there because God placed him there to fulfill his will. Not Nebuchadnezzar, but God's will. And we see God doing these all the time in every circumstance. When we see evidence of God's wisdom... In imparting wisdom to the wise and God wisdom in the fact that he reveals deep and dark things. And the reason God does it all the time in every circumstance. Because when we are surrounded by darkness, everything is still clear to God. Light dwells. With God. God knows the present. He knows the future. And he can reveal the future. He does it all the time. In every circumstance. But the fifth thing is. And I want to camp here for a while tonight. Maybe finish up here. He does it all for his own glory. He does it all for his own glory. In John 14, verse 13, Jesus says, Whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do. But notice the last part of this verse. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. You've heard me say it often. It's a precept on God's word. Everything that God does is for his glory and our good. But understand something. God is more concerned about his glory than he is anything else. That he gets the glory. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16 we read that God created everything through himself, for himself. 
Psalm 19 reminds us that God created the world to declare His glory. Isaiah tells us He formed and made man to reveal the glory of God. It's about the glory of God. Anyone who condemns His name, anyone who dishonors His name, he, God condemns. Exodus 20, verse 7. But the same God who condemns those who dishonor His name will also rescue those who bring honor to His name. When the Jews were taken into captivity by Babylon, He rescued them from that captivity so He would not be profaned among the nations. He rescued them for His own glory. Ezekiel 20, verse 9. The psalmist tells us He parted waters for them to gain everlasting renown. My friend, He's the God of glory. Why do you think Pharaoh was where he was at at that time? God put Pharaoh in leadership to create an opportunity that God might display his power so his name would be proclaimed all over the earth. Exodus 9.16 By the way, if you study the scriptures very much, you know that by the time the Israelites reached the promised land the second time, the people in Canaan were shaking in their boots. You know how, why? They had heard about the glory of God. The glory of the God of Israel. In Ezekiel 36, God made a new covenant with His people. And God promised them a new heart and a new spirit. But Ezekiel reminds us it wasn't for their sake. God did it for the sake of His holy name. God will be glorified. David wrote in the 23rd Psalm, He guides us in paths of righteousness for His name's sake, for His glory. Isaiah 48 reminds us that God delays His wrath for His own namesake and for the sake of His praise. And Isaiah says, he will not yield his glory to anyone else. In Isaiah 42, Isaiah writes, For the sake of his own righteousness, he made his law great and glorious. Our God is a God of glory. The psalm was in 138, the 138 psalm for a few verses. It says that God exalted His name and His word above all things for His praise. Do you know that God created us to give glory to Him, to worship Him, to praise Him? In John 11, the story of Lazarus, you know the, you know the text. God allowed Him to die 
so that he might be glorified. Not Lazarus, but that God might be glorified. In John 9, there was a man born blind. And the question was, who sinned? This man or his parents? But the Bible is clear. He was blind so God could be glorified. And so sometimes he allows folks to be sick so the power of God could be known and God be glorified. We have been called to obedience by the power of Jesus Christ and for his namesake to bring glory to God. Romans chapter 1 verse 5. And if you don't know it by now, God saved us so we might live for him. For his glory. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 15, Hebrews 9 14. It's interesting to me that the Bible says in everything we do, even simple things, simple things like eating and drinking, the Bible says we're to do it all for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 In John 17, in the high high priestly prayer of Christ, Jesus sought to be glorified so he could glorify the Father. In John 12, verse 27 and 28, we find that Jesus died on the cross to glorify his Father. In John 17, 24, we also find out that he blesses his people by allowing them to see his glory. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, that Christ is the head of the church so that in everything he might have preeminence. God deserves the glory. Psalm 29 verse 9 tells us that one day, one of these glorious days, when we enter his temple, we're going to shout glory. We are going to shout glory. And one of these days, one of these glorious days, When we move in to the new Jerusalem, when everything is made new, God's glory is going to replace the sun and be our light forever. The glory of God. In John 8, verse 50, there's no doubt that God seeks glory for himself. Paul reminds that with From him and through him are all things. And Paul says, so to him be glory forever and ever. Amen.
So the motivation for everything God does, and I mean everything that he does, even those that benefit us, think that for our good, the motivation behind all of that, they are done ultimately to bring glory to himself. To exalt him. Now please understand something. And this may sound pretty fundamental, but my friend, it's profound. We have to get this. God is first and foremost God. And how many other gods are there? None. Because of who he is, his supreme concern is with himself. And yet he loves us. Remember, God's gracious control over all things. His saving works, his grace, the condemnation of sinners, His unfailing love, they all have to do with one thing, and that's Him. They all have to do with Him. And what I want you to know tonight, nothing ever happens by accident. Nothing ever happens by chance, ever. There's nothing that doesn't happen that doesn't first go through the hands of God. God never gets up, leans over the rail in heaven, if there's a rail there, and say, I didn't know that. I didn't expect that one. Never. So we read from Matthew a moment ago. And Christ was giving instruction to the disciples here in Matthew 10. And in that chapter, he warned them a couple of times Fellas, you are going to go out and serve in a hostile world. Matthew 10, 16. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. So Jesus says, I'm going to send you out. And fellas, it won't be an easy time. There'll be people that are going to stand against what you stand for. There will be people who will try to put you to death. And Jesus, don't be afraid of what might happen to you. And my friend, the bottom line is this. And Jesus says so much to them, and we'll read the verse in a moment. The only fear we ought to have is the fear of God. Matthew 10, 28. Jesus says again to those disciples, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. But rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. There's no way 
reading those verses like that, we can miss how sober and serious this message is. And Jesus, in that, in this context, I believe, is giving us a basis for security even in the midst of an insecure world. And I got to tell you tonight, folks, I think you could agree, I'm glad my life is in his hands. Our world is in his hands. So where can we go? Where can we go for safety in a world that's filled with trouble? And again, let's look what Jesus says. Number one, trouble may come. May I rephrase that? Trouble will come. But God will never forget you. Verse 29, Romans 10. Look at it again. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. Now Jesus had just said a few verses ahead of this, and well, the verse ahead of it, don't be afraid of those people who can just kill your body, not your soul. Be afraid of me. And the awesome God who we are to fear, according to verse 28, he's the very same God that cares about the smaller sparrow. Wow. Think about that. And when we fear him, we really don't have anything to worry about because he loves us. The God of the universe loves us. I'm assuming the sparrow that Jesus talks about may be the same kind of sparrow we might see in our world today. But I do know in that day and time, the sparrow was the cheapest type of living food sold in the marketplace. A farthing, we might call it a penny. It was the smallest copper coin. And you could get two for a penny. Man, I think with five bucks I'd get you. You get a White Castle deal, right? I mean, man, a sack. Two for a penny. And because they were two for a penny, they were not of high value in the world. But my friend, they were high value to God. And even though the world didn't pay much attention, God is so concerned about one of them, about both of them, about any of them. He is so concerned that not one will fall to the ground unless God says fall to the ground without his consent. And so here we have the sparrow considered food for the poor. And because they were so cheap, the poor could offer them a sacrifice to the Lord if they couldn't afford a lamb or a goat or a bull. 
Aren't you glad God made a way for everybody to come? Always did. And I think one of the implications here is this. God does watch the sparrow when they fall. And so, it's true enough, when the sparrow falls, God sees it. But I think the verse is saying much, much more than that. Not only does God see the sparrow when it falls, the sparrow cannot fall apart from the will of God. That's providence. The sparrow cannot and will not fall apart from the Father's will. And remember, Jesus says, and one of them shall not fall to the ground without your Father. And that word Father makes it very tender and very personal. And so I look at this verse, and I think the teaching is clear here. It's not as though sparrows fall at random from the trees, and God takes note what, when it happens. The sparrow falls because God willed it to fall. And if he didn't will it or allow it, the sparrow would never fall to the ground. Now, by the way, when we think about God's providence, it involves a very high view of God's involvement even in the tiny, what we would consider insignificant details of the universe. Who would have thought that God cared two cents for the peril? Sparrow, forget, forget about the pun. He does. He does. He, he, he cares about the things that we see as insignificant. But how many know that no one or anything is insignificant before God? That's his providence. Two truths here, I think, implied. Number one, sparrows do fall. So eventually even the sparrows will fall to the ground. But also understand, Christ is speaking to the disciples and those who would come after them. Sooner or later, trouble will come to God's children. And I don't know how we ever came up with this before we were saved. But so many fall into that romantic notion that man, when we come to Christ, he will solve all of our problems. Uh, we will be free from trouble. We won't have sadness. We won't have sorrow. Uh, it's just be alive in the rose garden. How many have found out that's not true? The Bible says that God causes his rain to fall on the just and the unjust. In Matthew chapter 5 verse 45 
for he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. The idea that everything will be rosy when you get saved is from the pit of hell. Because what happens to people in the world can happen to us. Unsaved people get sick, and guess what? We get sick. Unsaved people can lose their job, and guess what? We can lose our job. The unsaved around us have family problems, but we never do, right? We know that's not true. We do. The unsaved get cancer. God's people get cancer. The unsaved die, and we will die one day if God tarries. So the bottom line is, it's the same for us as it is for everybody else. And thank God we know Jesus Christ as Savior. I wouldn't want to try it without Him. But even though we know Him as the Lord of our lives... We are not exempt from the trials and troubles of this world. But thank God, one of these days is going to take us home. So number one, the sparrows do fall. But number two, the sparrow can only fall according to God's will. And understand, we're talking about God's provision, His grace of provision. That's providence. And everything in this world takes place according to the decree and the counsel of Almighty God. And in a very real sense, everything in the universe must fit into God's ultimate plan somehow in some way. And so if I read what Jesus said and understand here in Matthew chapter 10, even the falling of the sparrow has to be inside God's providential oversight of the universe. And that being true, that reminds me that this applies to my pain, to my suffering, To any loss I might suffer. It applies to the heartache of watching a loved one suffer. And again, I want you to realize tonight, folks, God is never surprised by anything that comes our way. Ever. So how do we deal with this? How do we overcome this? We have to trust in God's sovereign purposes. We have to trust that God knows what he's doing. And we have to rest in the power of God's all-sufficient grace. Most of you know the story of the Apostle Paul. He prayed three times, Lord, take away this. Take away this from my life. This thorn in my flesh. 
And God said, Paul, my grace is sufficient. Let's stand together. Folks, the providence of God is a very important doctrine. I wouldn't want to face another day if I thought that God had lost control. He is in control. Amen. Don't forget tomorrow night at 7 o'clock, Lydia's ladies will meet here at the church. All the ladies are invited to that. And also Master's Men, all of our men are invited to that. We'd encourage you to come. And we'd love to see